Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Brigadier General Rich Gross, retired from the U.S. Army. General Gross is a 1985 West Point graduate and 1993 graduate of the University of Virginia Law School and spent 30 years on active duty before he retired in 2015. So General Gross, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Tom. It's an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us today about career progression. You're somebody that's had seven years to figure it out. And as we were talking before we got ready to go on here, you're still trying to figure it out. No, that's true. It's a, it is a process. You know, I think we all, most of us anyway, love the military so much and we just love what we do. We love the people, the traditions. And there's a little bit of a grieving process, frankly, when you finally decide it's time and they say everybody knows when it's time. But when you leave the military, it can be a tough time of adjustment as you get used to it. You know, I remember distinctly my last day on the job and on the joint staff, and I still had to do the out processing. And I was sitting in this little transition office in the Pentagon, which was several floors and a different corridors away from my office on the joint staff thinking they're going to call me. They need me. They're going to call. They've got all these things that I can help them do. And nobody did, because if you've done your job right, when you leave, then other people take over and do it for you. So that was the beginning of a pretty long process of getting used to not being in the military and not being on the job at the time. So yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of lessons learned there. I hope we'll get to talk about some of them. Yeah. So what are some of those lessons? What was that grieving process like for you? You know, it's funny, a friend of mine, Jeff Korn, I think once likened, you know, Jeff, retired Jack as well. He likened it to losing a limb when you leave the military. And I'm not, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but there definitely is a sense of loss and a sense of finding yourself. You know, for some people, that's pretty quick. You know, some people will turn right back around and hop into a GS job back in the service they just retired from, maybe sometimes even in the same office. I've seen that. And so their grieving may be different and grieving may be a little strong, but their adjustment period may be different than somebody like me who was completely on the outside. And I spent, once I retired, probably eight months just doing, I called them odd jobs, but a a little consulting here or a little bit of gig work there. I formed my own LLC to take some of that on. I did some leadership development training for a group called Thayer Leadership up at West Point that I still do work with. But there was kind of that sense of finding myself and not working full time every day from, oh, dark 30, as we say, till close of business at the end of the day. You know, all of a sudden I had some free time. And that was another adjustment to be sure. What did you take up hobbies? Did you find yourself taking hobbies or were you just sitting there watching Fox News and CNN of the world events saying, you know, thinking through what your co's would have been or recommendations you would have been making? I didn't sit around watching a lot of news. I will say that I, I spent a lot more time hanging out with my wife 
and getting to kind of pay her back for some of the times I'd been deployed or away or long hours at the office. Got to spend some more time with the kids. You know, at the time they were around college age or just slightly above. So we were approaching empty nest. So I got that great chance to spend more time with family. And that was wonderful. I had more time to spend at the gym, more time to spend on some personal hobbies, the guitar and some other things. And so, yeah, that was very fulfilling. And I took advantage of that. Yeah. And for the listeners, I get to see General Gross. And when he came on my screen, he is not the General Gross I knew. He looks like he's been spending a lot of time at the gym. So just trust me on this. So on that grieving process and you're finding yourself, when you went into these jobs, did you see these as just trying to get back into the game, just trying to do something that you think to need to be productive? Or did you see this as a means to an end? I really saw it as a way of exploring and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. When I went through the transition course, the military offers, and, and I went through a, you know, one for general officers, army general officers, it was pretty good. But the one comment I had about it, I've talked to others, and my understanding is they've changed this. But the one comment I had a, or critique I had about that course was they taught us all about the process of finding a job, the resume, the networking, you know, how you find the jobs, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't, that I can recall, we didn't talk at all about how do I figure out what I want to be when I grow up? And so there were other people in the course with me that knew exactly what they were going to do. For example, Mike Lennington, who retired as a three-star and is now the executive director of Wounded Warrior Project, he knew he was going into that job. He couldn't announce it yet, but he knew. So he didn't need a course on what do I do when I grow up? He knew where his passions were. He knew what he was going to do. I didn't have that advantage. I needed some guidance. Do I stay in the legal field? Do I do something else? And I didn't feel like I got that. So I spent a lot of time post-retirement exploring different little, I call them gig assignments. You know, I taught some executive communications courses for a friend of mine named Joe McCormick, who wrote a book called Brief. And I taught what he calls the Brief Lab. I facilitated sessions on executive communications, and that was fun. I did the leadership training for Thayer. I thought about the law, and I'm I'm sure we'll get into it. I ended up joining a law firm because I, I felt like I needed to get back into the practice of law. And so a lot of that time was spent exploring. A lot of that time, too, was spent talking to people who had retired, just like you're doing with me today. And I've had a number of people call me on the phone And we've spent some time together doing this. And it's so important to reach out to people, you know, the ones who've gone before you, the ones who've retired already, some jag, some non-jag, frankly. I mean, it's good to talk to both. Find out what their experience was. Find out how they decided what they wanted to do. And man, that could be so helpful. Some of the best advice I got was in that period of exploring. I talked to one non-JAG three-star retired general, not Mike Lennington that I mentioned earlier, but a different guy. And he said, look, every job has three criteria, location, compensation, and the kind of work you're doing. And he said, you're not going to get all three the way you want them. You're not going to find that perfect job in the perfect location with the perfect compensation. So you need to know what's most important to you and rank those criteria. If you have a kid in school and you're absolutely unwilling to leave or move, then location is number one for you. 
And then everything else stacks up behind it. He said, if you can find another job that has two of those three criteria where you want it, then you're doing pretty well. You know, you might get location and compensation, but it might not be the work you want to do or whatever. I have a friend that I know you know well, Mike Adams, who got out as a, a Navy JAG at year 20 and has done some amazing work. He told me he added a fourth criteria, which was kind of that work-life balance. And I think that is a good criteria to add, to consider. Do I want to work? Am I willing to work 80 hours to get the kind of compensation and location to do the kind of work I want? Or would I rather work 20 hours a week? And some of those other things maybe not work out. Now, all these criteria were set before the pandemic. And so one of the things that's changed about the face of work right now is do you actually have to move locations to work anywhere And that's going to depend on the company you're working for and their policies and what they're willing to do. I would tell you, and we can talk about this, there's some jobs I think you need to be on site. And general counsel, frankly, is one of those jobs. And I've learned that well since I left at DOD. So I already floated the idea to my wife of being just a kept man, but she vetoed that. Yeah, imagine that. So what insight do you have into finding yourself based upon your experience and finding what you want to do, because that's something I'm struggling with. I don't know what I want to do. Yeah, it's tough. And I would say the first thing is try a bunch of stuff if you can. If you can do little odd jobs, gig jobs or whatever, if you can you know, do some training over here and, and do some some different work there, you know, some writing or so, or so forth, Part a lot of part-time work that may help you explore what you want to do. If, if you take the first job that comes along and it's a full-time job and you've signed up, you don't want to be in the awkward position a month later saying, hey, this really didn't work out. I'm going to resign. I mean, you can, and it's more common nowadays, especially with Gen Z and millennials, much more common than it is for folks my age. But they, I mean, they jump jobs a lot and it's less of a thing for them to do that. But it's still, you don't, you just don't want to if you can avoid it. So I would say try a lot of things if you can. Talk to a lot of people. And, you know, I think most people are happy to give you 30 minutes on the phone and just to talk about, hey, here's what I'm doing. I love it. I don't love it. You know, I talked to a number of people who had been general counsel or still were. Dan DeLordo, for example, spent a lot of time talking to me on the phone about what it was like to be a general counsel at a private corporation. And that was invaluable. And he made me realize that I could do it. I think sometimes we're a little hesitant. You know, oh, all I've ever done is is I've been a jag. But man, the things we've done in the service, you know, we advise commanders on any legal issue that comes up. We're good at spotting things. We have good judgment. We stay calm typically in, in a crisis. We're able to think through a problem and, and bring solutions to the table. Well, guess what? That's a general counsel of any major corporation. And so when I, you know, I've had a number of people say, oh, I don't, you know, yeah, you were a general though, but you know, I was, ju- I'm retired as a lieutenant colonel. I'm retired as a colonel. I, I don't think I can do that. No, that's wrong. It has nothing to do with the rank. It has everything to do with what we've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years that sets us up perfectly to be an in-house counsel, if that's what you want to do. The other thing we tend to self-select out of is private practice. We think, oh, I, you know, I can't go join a law firm. You know, I'm not this or that. You can. You have to be careful about that in the sense that you have to know what you're getting into as counsel at a law firm in private practice because you've got to raise business. 
You've got to either bring a book of business, which most of us don't have, and that's a term of art, a book of business, or you've got to be willing to go out and find clients. And business development like that is not a lot of fun. For me, anyway, some people thrive on it. I, I just, I did not. It was just not something I enjoyed that much. You mentioned it, uh, that you did practice law for a while. Let's talk about that. What? Tell us about the evolution and uh, that process. Yeah, I had a friend. Well, I, I didn't know him at the time he called. He's a friend now, a guy named France Hong, uh, another West Point graduate. He had gotten out of the military and gotten his law degree and had joined a firm and was one of the named partners. Fluent, Huber, and Hong, we just called it FH&H. Great law firm in, in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area. Small law firm and, and veteran, primarily veteran-owned. And he reached out to me and said, hey, I, you know, you might be good at what we do. And so I joined their law firm after talking to a bunch of them. And absolutely, listen, I absolutely loved it. I, the business development, as I mentioned, was tough. And that was not my thing and not my favorite part of the business. But helping clients and finding a solution for clients was great. And I really, really enjoyed that. People say, well, you know, what kind of law did you practice? You know, nobody's paying anybody to do military law out there. Well, that may be true. But listen, every assignment we go to, we don't necessarily know what the law is. We just we know how to figure it out. And I did the same thing. So at my law firm, they needed help with government contracts. I had done government contracts uh, litigation as a major, hadn't really messed with it since. But listen, there's plenty of online CLEs that are available. And I went through and took a bunch of CLEs on bid protests and government contract law and disputes and reviewed all that stuff and kind of apprenticed under the guy at our law firm who'd been doing government contracts for 30 years. And I was able to successfully represent clients in government contracts pretty quickly. And so a lot of times what they want, your clients want, is they want your good judgment. They want that outside dispassionate look at the issues and they just want you to fight for them and give them good advice. And we can do that. We're all, we're very good at that as Jags. How long did you do that? And what went into decision to get away from the law practice? I probably would still be there. The, the money I was beginning to earn was really starting to come up because in our law firm, there was our particular law firm, there was no salary. It was based on the work you did. And I like that. That was very entrepreneurial. And so I'd been there about a year and I was approached by a CEO of a company in my hometown of Knoxville through a mutual friend. He had heard about me and he wanted me to join his firm or his company as their in-house general counsel. And after some discussion and visiting and, and so forth, I decided that that seemed like a really good move for me. And so I, I joined that company and, and just, oh, I loved it. I mean, the, the people were great. The compensation was great. The mission was great. Everything fit. I mean, and I was back in my hometown, so I was close to family again. That was all amazing. Enter private equity. So I knew going into that job that a private equity company was in talks to, uh, to buy our company. I knew that. And so my understanding was that they were going to build a big new company around us. And so... It all looked good, and but as soon as they owned the company, they let all of us go. The CEO, the CFO, the COO, and myself. And wow. so, yeah. And so that was a 10 months in the job. I had just signed a mortgage. That was a tough lesson. And, you know, it was hard. You know, I, I wasn't 
fired per se. I was I was let go for redundancy. That's what uh, the private equity companies I learned say when they let people go. You're redundant. You know, I had never been fired from a job before, Tom. That was hard. But, you know, it wasn't for cause. It was just because they had their team and they put in their own CEO and their own COO and their own general counsel, et cetera. And we were let go. That was tough. That was tough. And so what are you doing now? A number of things, actually. And, you know, I recovered. (laughs) Hopefully recovered quite well. I'm now back to kind of doing jobs here and there. One of my primary roles, I still work with Thayer Leadership and I facilitate leadership development programs up at the Hotel Thayer at West Point, New York. It's a great company that helps private companies, civilian industry. They come in and get the lessons of leadership that how the Army and how West Point trains, develops and and leads. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. I've been doing that really since I retired off and on. I, I mean, I took a break when I was at that company here in Knoxville, because I was a full-time general counsel. But I, I, so I do some work for them. I was asked by the uh, general counsel of DOD, uh, the Honorable Caroline Crass, if I would come on as a, an HQE, a highly qualified expert, which I think is a funny title. But she wanted some help with some of the military justice reforms that Congress enacted in the fiscal year 22 NDAA. It's a part-time gig with her office. I help with the military justice reforms and do some of the briefings to Congress and talk to folks about it and so forth. So that's it's a consulting role, really. But on paper, I'm a I'm a government employee, but it's part time and it's remote. So it doesn't feel like a full time job in the Pentagon, (laughs) thankfully. And so I'm doing that. And then and I'm talking to a couple of companies now about consulting gigs involving different areas, the law and ethics around AI, around one involving a a company that uses technology to help the military in uh, targeting. I'm talking to a company about data collection in military operations and how that can be used. I'm not the world's expert on AI or or the metaverse or all all these other things, not even close, (laughs) but I know how to learn, you know, and I, and I have good judgment, I think. And I have, like I said, all the stuff that we have is Jags. I stay calm you know, in stressful situations. I tell people what I think. I don't sugarcoat things. I speak truth to power, just like we all do. And I think folks find that useful. And so I'm talking to a number of people about possible consulting gigs. I'd have to be careful. I have to make sure, obviously, it's a HQE. It doesn't conflict. And and I don't have a conflict of interest. And it doesn't, it's not inappropriate. I don't represent anybody to the U.S. government and so forth and so on. But that's that's been interesting. And then I'm well, let me not talk about the other thing. <laughs> you can talk about whatever you want. It's your podium. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm talking to somebody else too about other potential sure, uh, employment opportunities, but I'm not going to talk about that. On the consulting, suppose there's somebody out there listening right now. I mean, you know, you, I've heard a number of people say, well, I'm doing consulting. I mean, how do you determine what to charge? You know, how do you to go about those things? It's hard. I mean, it really is hard. You know, you kind of feel your way through it. You know, sometimes they'll tell you, they'll say, we'll pay you X per hour and and so forth. I used kind of my law firm rates sometimes as a baseline and then went up or down from there. And, and, you know, and sometimes you'll mention a number and they'll say, okay. And you're like, oh, I didn't ask for enough. (laughs) And then sometimes you'll mention a number and they'll choke. And then you realize you're, you're way out of, out of the ballpark on that. So it, it, I would say the best thing I did 
was in a particular consulting gig, I would find somebody else who had consulted in a similar manner. And, and I went and I would talk to them. I've got a couple of people that I that I talk to and I'll say, hey, what, what would you charge for something like this? And they'll they'll typically give you a range. And that's that's been helpful to me. And then I'll go back to the company. I mean, you, you'd be amazed what companies are able to and willing to pay for your time. And, you know, and a lot of times, too, you're you know, there's that old saw about they brought in the guy to repair the supercomputer and, and he walks over and he takes a hammer and he bonks the side and they and he charges them $10,000. And they said, $10,000, you were only here for a minute. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the $10,000 is for the eight years of school that it took to get here. You know, it's it's the experience and the background you're paying for. And sometimes when you do these consulting gigs, it may take you half an hour to solve somebody's problem. And so if you're charging 10 bucks an hour, you know, you just made five bucks. Congratulations. <laughs> so you've got to, I'm being a little facetious, but you You've got to charge enough knowing that, you know, now if it's going to be a long-term thing where you're going to work eight hours a day for weeks on end, yeah, you, you've got to be careful how you charge for those because, you know, it may be it may be too much for a client to take and you really need to talk to them about a maybe a weekly fee or a monthly fee or something like that. And how do you get the word out about your consulting gig through, is it word of mouth or, you know, is there a consulting, uh, a tender for salt consulting companies to make, to link up with companies or what? For me, it's mostly people have come to me. They've heard about me. You know, a friend has mentioned my name. I've had a number of situations where, you know, somebody, a former boss, a former commander, a former client in the military, you know, who sits on a board or, or, uh, you know, works in a, a position in a company has said, oh, yeah, you need to talk to Rich Gross. And that's, I mean, that's always, a, first of all, it's a wonderful compliment, but it also, you know, it brings business your way. So, you know, that's part of it. You can do that yourself in a sense that you can go out and let folks know that people who know you and trust you and let them know, go to old commanders, go to old bosses and, hey, ma'am, I'm going to be consulting. If you know of anybody who needs these kind of services, you know, let them know I'm out there. I think the other thing that's important is you've got to have an up-to-date LinkedIn profile. That's the marketplace right now. And that's where people look you up first. And so clean it up. And I'm not an expert on making a nice LinkedIn profile. I've taken advice from folks. I've been to a few seminars, you know, that have been offered on how to do that better. And so it's it's worth finding someone who knows how to do that. You know, I, it's funny. I see guys getting out of the military and their profile picture is them in battle rattle with a helmet on. I'm like, no, you need a professional civilian headshot. Go pay for one if you don't have one. And people will help you design your headline and your titles and your experience. You need to have all that cleaned up so when people are looking for you, they know how to find you. What else out there have you had to learn the hard way that you wish you knew going into retirement? Now, great question. I think the one thing that helped me that I I stumbled into is when I came to the job here in Knoxville, I had an offer letter. And an offer letter is essentially that contract for employment. And I really didn't know anything about negotiating for compensation. I'd learned some in the the transition assistance program. I was fortunate I have a cousin who does HR and compensation. She helped me quite a bit on how to negotiate what needs to be in there, what doesn't. There was one clause in that 
offer letter that I didn't negotiate for. They had just put it in there that said, if I got let go within the first year, not for cause, that I got an additional severance package. And I didn't think I was going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not leaving. Why? And so I'm like, okay, thanks. And 10 months later, guess what? That gave me a safety net for, gosh, a, a big safety net. Let's just put it that way. And so I would not have known to have asked for that. I had a friend who came into the same company as the COO. He was a West Pointer. He'd been out for 10 years in business. He was the COO in private industry, and he knew about those kind of things. He took his offer letter and went and hired an attorney who specialized in you know, civilian HR type issues and compensation. And you know, he paid that guy, who knows, 500 bucks an hour, 700 bucks an hour for an hour or two's worth of time to go through there and say, here's what's good about this. Here's what you need to add. Mm. And so my buddy knew to do that because he'd been out for a while. I didn't have a clue. I just, I was used to the military. You know, your branch calls you and says, here's your next job. And you're like, thank you very much. And oh, here's what we're going to pay you. Okay, thanks. You know, and I knew enough to at least sort of negotiate, but not, not to the extent this guy did. My bottom line message is go find somebody who can help you as you go into a job to kind of take a look at some of the things you're signing, whether you hire an attorney or find somebody who's an HR expert or just talk to a friend who's done it, you know, make sure you know what you're getting into and make sure you're taking care of yourself because sometimes the companies aren't taking care of you. It's business. It's a different world. Loyalty is a different concept in the commercial and, and civilian industry. And so you, you need some help. You need somebody on your side to help you through that. I guess the other lesson I would tell folks is talk to people. Call former bosses, call former peers, call former subordinates if they got out before you did and just have conversations. You don't know what you don't know and talk to them and get some advice and, and help you think through what you're, what you're gonna be doing out of the military. That's what we're hoping to do with this podcast. Exactly. Expose people. Last question for you. I want to get rid of a myth. There's a myth that you and Kevin Brew are alter egos. Can we put that to rest now? Oh, I agreed not to talk about myself that way. <laughs> no, it's funny. People don't know what you're talking about, but Kevin Brew is a Navy Jag. He was the SEAL Team Jag when I was the, the Delta Jag. And and there was this rumor, we had never been seen in the same place. And so we kind of had this running gag that he and I were the same person, that I, I was Clark Kent and he was Superman, although he'd always flip that around. And then I'll never forget, and I never met him face to face. I never met him face to face until after we got out of the military or after he left his unit. And uh, I ran into him at a, a courtroom opening in Iraq. I was going to say, I've got a picture of you guys talking. So I was able, I was able to get a picture to prove that you guys are two different uh, yeah, people. That's right. You were, yeah. And so we, I was standing there and it was, it was funny. The, the crowd kind of parts and there's this guy standing there and I looked at him and I said, Brew? And he said, Rich? And it, big hug. And it's, it's the first time we'd ever met in person. It was hilarious. Actually, he said, Rich? Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, General Gross, thank you for your time. This has been great. It's been informative. And like I said, the goal is to get in and get out. And you've provided a lot of things to think about in less than 30 minutes. Cool. Thanks, Tom. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production. 